when a student can see the target and they know where they need to go, and you're actually having an explicit conversation about that. It, they have that mindset, well, yeah, I remember, I really need to focus on this because Ms. Saeed and I talked about how um, I could really work on making clear sentences and in those language guides, and it really does filter into everything else. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How can teachers structure one-to-one student conferences to help multilingual learners own their academic growth while also building relationships? What are some innovative ways we can leverage everything from testing data, student work artifacts, and portfolios to help students and teachers set and measure progress toward goals? How might we make conferences and learning celebrations more widely practiced and systematic across classrooms in schools? We discuss these questions and much more with Sarah Saeed. We first featured Sarah on Highest Aspirations back in 2018, and we're excited to bring her back. Sarah is the Director of Language and Equity Programs at the Elgin Math and Science Academy in Elgin, Illinois. Sarah has spent 17 years working with multilingual learners. Currently, she is launching the Stand Up Stumps, which is a social justice-based public art project in Elgin. Sarah has written various articles in Edweek Teacher and Confianza, and she appeared on Highest Aspirations to discuss cultural responsiveness back in 2018. This episode provides listeners with some actionable ideas to make assessment more meaningful while also building and nurturing positive relationships with students. As always, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Sarah Saeed, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I think it's been like three years. It has, it has. And you know, um, I, we, I've been part of starting the school and really building that up. So I've been pretty busy, but I'm glad to be back and be here with you. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. It's been it's been quite a journey. And the great thing about it is that there's, you know, our colleague, I'll, I'll mention her, Ari mentioned uh, some of the great things that you were doing. And she said, you should reach out because she's interested in, in chatting about them. And this is obviously a great venue to do that. So the hope here is that a lot of the things that you talk about, just like last time, um, other folks can kind of think about them and get started in doing the work that that, that you all are doing there. So um, that being said, a lot of this conversation uh, is going to revolve around amplifying the voices of multilingual learners and their families so that they have a greater control, more agency around their, their education. And I want to just kind of ground ourselves by talking about why you feel like this is such a crucial need in this moment and in general. Obviously, this moment is a unique one as we kind of come back from a year and a half of, of just madness in education and a lot of other places. Um, so, so, so why is it so important and why specifically now do you think it's so crucial? I, I think because we really need to, um, we've always needed to allow our students to be leaders in their own learning and really be in the driver's seat when it comes to that. I think, you know, this pandemic has been difficult, but let's look at it from a positive angle and look at it as an opportunity to um, dismantle and restructure our systems and how we really look at learning. And a lot of times the student voice isn't brought in because especially with multilingual learners, um, they're still gaining their proficiency in English. And you know the, the, the general thought of teachers as well, you know, they, they struggle with language. Why would I bring their voice in? But that's where you can find multiple angles and multiple ways to bring a student's voice in, even if you don't speak the language. 
Yeah. And I think that's, you brought up a really uh, an interesting concern. I was just talking to somebody about this earlier today. You know, how are we going to bring voice in when language is, you know, a challenge or, or a barrier that people call it? And we know that it's not a barrier, it's an asset and it's something that we can bring in. And we'll get into that um, in a little bit. And I like what you said also about, you know, it has been a hard year and a half or so, but there's also been these moments of, I think, clarity and learning that we can kind of bring forward as we, um, as we go through this, this next school year, which I think will be an exciting one. So um, we're grounded in kind of the why, and I think that's, that's important. The logistics is another thing that kind of um, scares people away from these kinds of things. So like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about means you're having one-on-one conferences with students, right? Um, yes. You're spending the time to really allocate time to give them an opportunity to talk about their, their learning, their goals, their challenges. So logistically, how do you go about allocating the time to do that? Because that's always like the biggest challenge. I, I don't have the time or the logistics to do that. And how do you structure the conferences? So start with like the, the timing and then sort of how the structure goes when you actually do these. So the timing, um, being an EL education school and using the EL education K to five ELA curriculum, we, we kind of have that timing built in already. There's, we have two blocks for ELA and at the lower grades, it's our, what you would call our module or it's our general content literacy. And then at the, and then there's also a chunk of time called the skills block, which is structural phonics and that's rotations. So what we do in the first few weeks of school with the younger ones is during those rotations, we push in and we become a rotation. And that's where the conferences are handled. With the older kids, we call it the all block, the all language literacy block. That's what the acronym stands for. And during that all block, so that second block of literacy time, that is a time where at the beginning of the year, while we're, you know, we're, you know, it's always the, the grind in the world of multilingual, right? You're learning the data, you're starting to understand that that's where we do our first conference. And so we get to know our, the way it's structured. So we, at the beginning of the year, we're really getting to know our students. And right. so that's where we get to know them. We try to do it after students take the NWEA um, ELA and math assessment. And so that's where we start talking to them about you know, how do you think you did? We, you know, where, where, where are your strengths um, and what work do we need to do? So we look at those areas on the NWEA map assessment, but then we also look at the WIDA assessment. And with the WIDA assessments, we look at the four domains of language. And so from looking at both sets of data, that's where we turn to our students and say, okay, which domain do you think you wanna really focus on during this part of the year. And, you know, they look at their data, they look at the can-do descriptors. And so if there are three, they look at what you need to become a four. And in those descriptors, they use that. And we work together to formulate a sentence. So if a student is struggling with coming up with that sentence, that's where we may utilize a sentence them to help them. And, you know, it's a conversation of, okay, what do we do in all of well, we know we do language dives. We know we, we know we do writing. And so we, you know, also we wait till the routine is established in there. So they know what the routine is. Right. Really it's like the third week of school, I would say that we set the first goal just so that they've had their feet wet and they know the structure of all in skills block. And that's during the time where we, um, 
again, we have that conversation. We create that goal together. Um, by, by the second time, it's more student-driven. So the first time it's more like modeled, um, but we create that goal together. And then when the winter comes along, we come back to that goal. And we look at that goal through a couple different lenses. There's a celebration of learning, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. um, but also we look at that goal in their progress on, again, map assessment, because we do it again in the winter. Um, we also look at the different uh, standards. We are standards-based grading. So we look at the different common core standards and how they match up with the WIDA standards. And we have a conversation about the domains and where their growth was. Um, and then during our celebrations of learning and their parent-led, their student-led conferences, student-led parent-teacher conferences, they actually dis discuss their progress with their parents as well. So, I mean, and it, we have those goals established. We keep them, you know, if we want to get technical, um, you know, we're going to be working with keeping them in elevation this year. In the past, we kept them in spreadsheets. Now that our program is bigger, we actually have it. We're actually going to be doing them in meetings on elevation. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's great to hear, obviously being from elevation, but I, and I want to come back to that, but I want to, I want to backtrack a little bit. It's sound, you know, you're using in terms of logistics and time, you're using the time that's kind of already afforded to you. This isn't like a special yes. thing. Like every, almost most, most districts and most teachers do have access to these. It's just a matter of, it sounds like kind of, I don't know if it's retrofitting in your case, but in many situations, it might be retrofitting the time and thinking about, okay, how can we best serve um, these students during this time so that we're able to chat with them um, and get, first of all, start to build a relationship. And what a great opportunity to start building that relationship. And you said like by the third week, then you're really getting into the kind of the nitty gritty and thinking about assessments and whatever data that you have um, mm -hmm. available to you. So I think like there's two pieces there that you just brought up that I think are important takeaways. One is determine the right time to be able to do this so that you're not going crazy and so that you're not, you know, taking something else away, right? And two, think about how the structure is going to go in terms of the data that you're looking at. And I want to dive in a, a little bit more into that. You said, you know, you use the 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 WIDA um, data, the can-do descriptors. Um, which most with anybody who's working in a WIDA state is familiar with, um, as well as um, MAP, it sounded like assessments that you're using as well. Yeah. What, in terms of like, you know, put, put, put me in the situation where you're sitting like next to a student, like what do you have, what do you have in front of you? Um, and how do you get that student to really kind of like internalize the data and make it more than just a test score and make it more than something that you got this, but rather something where here's where you are now and here's where you can go. Talk about that a little bit. I think that's the magic, right? Yeah. And I mean, in our school, we are a portfolio school. So if they're, if they're a fifth grader, I mean, we're in year four as a school, we have their, their portfolios from second grade. Yeah. That's amazing. So we, we can flip through them and we can look at them and we can have a conversation about the growth. I have their map data from when they were second grade all the way to, and I have it graphed all the way to, you know, fifth grade. So it's a bunch of different pieces of artifacts and even looking at the quality of the writing and the, you know, quality of the conversation, even talking about anecdotal, you know, when you were in second grade, you know, you, you really um, struggled with formulating sentences while you were speaking. 
now you're speaking in front of your classroom and presenting in front of your classmates. Like, because we know them so well, those are the conversations we have. Now, when it's a student I don't know, um, that's when I start asking them questions about their schooling history. What was your classroom like? What was your teacher like? Um, you know, how do you like to learn? What, what are some things that I can do to support you? And even when I do know them, I ask the same question. What can I do to support you? Mm -hmm. Like, where, where, do, where do you think I fit in? And to be honest, they usually have some really good answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They so know I themselves that, as learners, yeah. Yes, they look point. at themselves as learners. And, you know, I'm in a really unique role where I service and support students and co-teach um, in the upper grades, but I'm also the program director. So I can look at it from 500 feet and I can look at it from 10,000 feet. And what I can say is we have seen growth on, like when I look at the map scores, we have seen growth on the map scores in terms of that are at benchmark and also, um, you know, uh, meeting their growth targets. And I think it's because when a student can see the target and they know where they need to go, and you, you're actually having an explicit conversation about that. It, they have that mindset. Well, yeah, I remember. I really need to focus on this because Miss Saeed and I talked about how um, I could really work on making clear sentences and in those language dives. And it really does filter into everything else. Yeah. And, you know, what I like about what you're saying here is that it seems to be a combination. And I can sort of picture because I remember it like I remember the exact place that I'd have these conferences and the students would have this work in front of them. And I'd have some some data that was more like quantitative. And it, it, you have a lot of artifacts to look at. So while I may be looking at sort of whether it was formative or, 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 or uh, summative assessment data um, or whatever the case may be, the student often was, was showing me um, artifacts from the portfolios that, that you had mentioned. So, uh, you know, from, from the student perspective, I guess my question is what, what, what typically are they showing you? What parameters do they have? I mean, I imagine it's a structure and agency kind of thing. It can't be just totally wide open. You can show me whatever you want. You have this portfolio. There has to be some structure there, but there's also got to be agency. So what are, what are they showing you to kind of um, inform you of their path and their learning and their path forward? I mean, in the portfolio, it's a very, um, we, we have a very, we narrowed it down to things that kids need to have because they would put everything in there. So we have like the major pieces of writing. And I mean, what's nice about the EL education, ELA curriculum is each quarter, they take time to go draft by draft to work on one piece that is high quality. And so we look at those high quality pieces from each quarter and that's the discussion we have. So if we're in, if we're in like second or third quarter, we're looking at what they did first quarter. Mm -hmm. And that piece of writing, um, like in our third grade class, it's usually, they usually write like, uh, they, they write about like their own literacy. And so like, we have that piece um, and their own reading difficulties. We have that piece and we talk about that and we have a conversation about it. And, you know, that's what leads the conversation. Logistical question, because I think it's important. It's mm -hmm. coming to my mind as I'm thinking about how you go about doing this. And a lot of it is the conversation and the, and the it, but it's all, but it's all, there's also like, you know, you talked about you, you're using elevation and the meeting center to kind of do, to document some of this information and to have it down. I'd love to know, not only without elevation tools, but anything else, how are you kind of 
organizing this all this information because it's not only you who's holding on to it it's the student as well and i could see that being a bit of a nightmare with like manila folders or or chromebooks everywhere i mean how are you how are you putting that information together in a way that both you and the student can understand it we we were pretty much putting them in like really condensed sentences like i can statements so they could remember this was their i can goal and we i i had them typed out and given to them with learning targets and then like the, and they were learning targets. And then um, I held on to them as well in the spreadsheet, in like a spreadsheet so that I had that documented after each meeting. That was prior to having elevation. With elevation, like I said, it's they still have that target, but it's in the meeting notes. And then of course you can send the notes to people. So like that goes to the parents, that goes to the teacher so that they can have them. Yeah, so you have all stakeholders involved digitally and in a way that you can keep it organized. Yeah. Cause I just remember like I had, when I was, this was years ago and I had students, I actually gave students the option as to whether, cause some, some of the way that works is some of my students had, had iPads, but some of my students issued by the school, but some of them didn't. So I'd say, you know, your portfolio can be digital or Uh you can create it yourself. And it got to be yeah, we are one to one. So yeah. and most are <laughs> well, now. We have, yeah, we well, most schools are. We we also use seesaw. Yep. So we can easily um, we're a big seesaw school. So we can easily open up their seesaw account and see what's in there as well um, with them on Chromebooks. And then we have paper binders as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was just I just thinking back to like the and I that's something that I can struggle with is just the overwhelming amount of stuff. So you have to have kind of a place and a system in place before you start. I speak from experience because it can get overwhelming pretty soon. But if you oh, have something like Seesaw, your one-to-one and elevation, you're definitely in good shape. Oh, we are. <laughs> like I said, so, there's a lot of positive that's come from this pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And hopefully that's not that we won't go back to the way it was. That's like one of my biggest fears and concerns is that we go back to that. Oh, not us. Yeah. I don't know. I get the impression that that's not the case. Um, all right. So sticking with these one-to-one meetings, we've t- spent a lot of time on this. We think it's really like the talking about the structure and the logistics of it is important. What do you, what, do, what would you consider a successful outcome to one of those meetings? Like you've just left, um, you're sort of thinking about it and processing and reflecting. What, what, what's, what's this, what's a successful outcome? I've done less talking. I love it. Yeah. The student's done most of the talking. The student has, um, been able to look at the can-do descriptors and say, hey, this is where, um, and you know, in a thoughtful way, this is where I really have work to do, and this is where I am, and this is where I want to be. And today, and this and is did, how I'm going to get there. And this is how I'm going to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And did they respond because they, they, I, I love the can-do descriptors in that they're asset-based. Um, they they give you something to shoot for. Does it take time for you to kind of acquaint the students with them and the language and how it kind of works? Or is it, I see you nodding your head. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the teacher. His last name is Colbertson. Um, he's well known on Twitter. He actually wrote student-friendly can-do descriptors. Oh, I love that. Those are the ones I use. Um, I don't, I, I don't want to take credit for that. Those are his, he's in Michigan. He, he's actually shared them on Twitter. Um, and so that's, those are the ones I use. And especially with the, the little ones, the kindergartners, we, yeah. we only look at listening and speaking in the beginning, just because they're still learning how to formulate sounds and all the data we really have is for listening and speaking anyway. 
Um, and we wait until we get some better reading data from some of their benchmarks, because they also do um, EL education benchmarks in order to kind of acquaint them more with the reading goals. And then with the older kids, I would say now, because some of them have done it, they, they know where to go. And I even, I was even doing it on Seesaw last year where I, where I actually plugged in those, um, where I actually plugged in those student-friendly can-dos. And I had them kind of go into Seesaw, read them and like kind of circle the ones they thought were most important and write it down first before they met with me. Yeah. You just brought up something that's really important, and that's the idea of sort of crowdsourcing crowdsourcing information and the natural yes. sort of ability of, of you to find information and the the great sharing that happens in professional learning um, communities. And you and I have talked about that before in the past and how great is it that, that you have a teacher uh, from Michigan who's putting out these amazing resources that you're crediting and that you're using. That's awesome. Yeah, because it can be a little heady. It can be a little academic, right? The language. It's 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 designed for teachers, so it makes it makes sense. So I think that was kind of the the the, the foundation of my question is how do you know how do the students that are some of them in, in elementary school how do they go about processing them? And that's a that's a great way to do it. So earlier you mentioned um, and you said we'd get into what we're going to now those those multilingual celebrations of learning. I think that that's so crucially important, maybe now more than ever, as we really focus on, um, you know, the asset-based nature of learning, um, as we focus on social, 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 emotional learning, excuse me, inspiring confidence in students after what has been for many students, a very traumatic, um, year and a half. So I, I don't know if I hit on any of the things that those, that, that the purposes that you, that you are hoping to accomplish with those multilingual celebrations of learning, but talk about us and uh, talk, talk with those about us. Sorry, I'm having a hard time with my words this afternoon. I've done two of these today in my defense. Okay. And sometimes when I do two in a day, my, my language skills are not as good as they normally are. I'm yes. sure listeners will forgive. So let me try that again. Talk with us about um, those celebrations and the purpose that they serve. You know, it's really to allow students to be able to um, talk about the authenticity and craftsmanship of their high quality work. And so, again, authenticity and craftsmanship. I love that. Yes. yes. Sorry. But that doesn't come from me. That comes from EL education. I can't take that credit. Um, and so in the world of EL education, um, they really think about, you know, and this is um, Ron Berger. If people follow him on Twitter. You know, talking about the idea that when children, you know, grow up and they're done with school and they enter the workplace, that people will look at them by the quality of their work and their character. So we have celebrations of learning all across the board. So every class has one. Sometimes we, um, teachers invite parents. During the pandemic, they didn't, they did it more digitally. But I think we're going to move back to having parents in the building, I hope. I hope so, too. Um, but then we do our own in the multilingual department because it's more of a, a comfort thing, right? With multilingual families and multilingual students where multilingual students can feel free to be able to have, give those same presentations, but in their native language so that they can communicate with their parents about the quality of their work. So what I usually have students do, and I have a display where we'll have the, the, the piece that the student is whether it's a piece of writing and sometimes with the little kids, it's writing and art, mm -hmm. or it could be, it could be something they've built, you know, they have that there like in a space, think of like an art gallery space and the student standing or science fair type, you know, set up the student standing there, 
but I also have their goal there, but it's written in a way where like if other parents see it, we're not violating any type of confidentiality. So their, their, their goals there as well. It's there in English and it's there in the native language, which I do my best with Google Translate. I don't, I'm not literate in every language. I'm only literate in three. So you That's know, I, I wouldn't say best. only, that's pretty good. I do my best, <laughs> but you know, sometimes like some of my Polish parents, my Polish speaking parents are like, yeah, that's not what that says. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Help me out then. Yeah. Yeah. I tried, but you know, just really thinking about that, even though it's not correct, there's still that comfort that we tried and our parents appreciate it. Right. And so the kids have that conversation about their learning and what has been going on in their classroom with their parents. But it's not, I mean, we do student-led conferences too, but this is a little different because they're only talking about one piece. And it's really something that they are proud of and they present. So that's really what a multilingual celebration learning is. And they present to other parents as well. And it's just a really comfortable space. Yeah. It sounds very intentional. And you've said the word comfortable many, many times. And I, I know that you've said that deliberately because that's important. You know, the last thing you want to do um, is create, uh, you know, discomfort uh, from something that the student should be really confident about. And I think like you're, you're, I think you do a good job. It sounds like kind of getting right at that zone of proximal development, that, that, that productive struggle, right. Where you're just at the point where you're, you're learning, but you're not totally um, overwhelmed. I think that's great. And it's such a key tenant in any, in any part of education. Um, so, you know, when we first talked and we were talking a little bit before we clicked record on this episode, um, I, I had to ask you, I had to put on our, on our questions, a question about scalability. And you had asked me, well, what do you mean by scalability? And it was a really good question because I was looking at this as the point of view of, you know, I was the teacher uh, who wanted to do things like this. Um, and I would have these conferences with my students and I was doing portfolios, but I was the only one, right? Like I was doing it kind of in a silo. And then maybe another teacher would be interested in knowing what I was doing, would work together, would do different things. I, I didn't work in a school like yours. So I know that in your school, this is kind of part of the culture and correct me if I'm wrong. It's part of the mission. It's part of what you do. So I'm maybe asking you a bit of an unfair question, but I'd love for you to give your perspective on what does it take to make this something that everybody in the school is doing and not just, it's not just something that's happening in these little silos. Okay. Well, this change takes time, right? And it can happen overnight and you can't be discouraged if you feel like you are in your own silo. It's kind of like, have you ever seen that video of, the silly dancer. And then somebody else looks at the silly dancer and then they start dancing the same way. And then eventually you have a crowd of silly dancers. I've not it, seen it. Sounds like something I need it, to see. It's, it's kind of like setting up that culture where, I mean, from the administrative perspective, it's easier to set that culture, right? But from, I, I want to also think about the teachers that are listening to us from the teacher's perspective. I think if you do it in your classroom and you really Put it out there that you're doing that and you even allow teachers to observe you and allow you know you really um make yourself vulnerable and open to that i think that you're going to have more silly dancers following you yeah yeah from the administrative perspective it's really you know working with you know your core group of teachers maybe your school improvement team or your we have instructional leadership 
leadership team and really talking in your culture about how do, do you implement that and really working with teachers to get their voice on how they want to implement that and um, understand that as well. Yeah. And you bring up a, a, I think you kind of alluded to something that I was thinking about here too, is that there are always teachers who are interested in sharing their expertise and becoming teacher leaders. I, I was one of those people. And those opportunities, unfortunately, don't always exist in kind of an official capacity, right? So as a school administrator, how do you go about leveraging a teacher who is doing something that is successful, even if it's anecdotally successful, right? And getting them to share that information um, with others, which is something that you're doing on this podcast, just with a greater audience, right? But like, I think that's that's a great way to go about doing it. Would you agree? Yes. And it depends on the comfort level of the teacher. Some teachers want to put themselves out there. Some get scared. And, you know, it's really, I think when you have that person who is that, that quiet person that's doing so many good things in their classroom and you're like, you know, I really want to showcase you. And they're like, I don't know. I don't want to be that one. You know, they don't want to be that one. It's really working first with them and taking the time to work with them to build their confidence, whether it be um, starting slowly with them to have them send an email to, you know, continuing to move about it. We're continuing to move with them to get them to present at a staff development, like having that type of staff. We've had staff developments where we try to work with different teachers. So it's not just the same people. We try to work with different teachers to um, present on what they're doing in their classroom. We, we try to do like gallery walks too with our staff mm -hmm. on yep. different topics. And okay, well, this, you know, everybody's got theirs on the gallery walk. You can go look at it and um, respond quietly or talk to that person later. So it, it depends on your school climate environments. Yeah. And there's a, you just mentioned gallery walks, which to me is like a great sort of passive way of celebrating a teacher who may not be like front and center wanting to, because yeah. you're right. You're right. And I didn't mention that. And I'm glad you did. Like not every teacher who's doing great and amazing things is, is the person who wants to be, you know, leading a, a session. Or but, wants to be on Twitter. <laughs> right. Right. But building the confidence so that they might be able to do that in some way, even if it's just a gallery walk or more passive way, because there's just so much knowledge to be gained by that. And the more we can do it, um, I think the better, particularly when we start to talk about um, some of the really interesting things that you all are doing with, with conferencing and with, um, with portfolio work. Um, I, so one more kind of specific question about this, particularly with the WIDA standards, before we get into, um, into some questions that I'd ask everybody. You, you've aligned a lot of the goal setting with with the WIDA standards, um, with can-do descriptors. Um, you, you're using a lot of the goals. You're using elevation to document that all, which I think is all great. Um, the standards are changing this year. Um, and so I'm curious. I haven't really talked with a lot of people. This is fairly new. But how do you plan on um, on sort of incorporating that during this transition year? I mean, a lot of people are asking about that. I don't think anybody's really super worried, but they're just like, all right, well, what do we do now? Because things are changing, but the test isn't changed. So where are we with that? You know what I'm, I see, I'm still learning that too. I'm maintaining the same can-do descriptors that I've used because I've gotten the guidance that the can-dos are not changing much. It's mm -hmm. more of the key language uses. So now I need to think about, well, how do I incorporate those key language uses better um, along with the can-dos because I was only incorporating the can-dos before. 
Yeah, for what it's worth, I think your approach is right. I think people tend to get a little panicky and, and worry about you know change before before it happens. Um, but I think this is like like I said, a, a transition year, and I've seen that before with with other like having teach taught AP courses. You know, when the rubrics change, it was always this big like, oh, what's going to happen? But then typically the change kind of evolves over time, and you there's time to kind of um, to, to bring it in when you need to. And I don't think that we need to need to worry about anything else. Uh, if possible, as we go back to school this year, there's enough, there's enough on our plates for sure. But I wanted to make sure I asked, because I didn't know if you had, you had any other, any other guidance there. Um, okay. So, uh, question that I'd like to ask everybody, and I probably asked you this three years ago and I haven't, I don't remember what you said, and I don't know if you do either, but at this point, three years later, um, in the second episode that you're doing with us, is there a book or a film or any other resource that has had an important influence you on you, either personally or professionally, um, that you'd like to share? Lately, I've been reading the book, The Deepest Well, by Nadine Burkharis. And the reason why I've been reading that and really trying to like internalize that and understand it is, you know, we're in a time where we have experienced collective trauma. And we're trying to move forward from that collective trauma. And, you know, we think about it as adults, but now we need to think about how that collective trauma affects kids and their growth and development. And so that book, um, you know, she really like lays it out on how as a doctor, she's treated kids that have come from extreme trauma and how it's affected their physical growth and their, um, you know, academic development as well. So I'm thinking about, well, how can we utilize her study to help us right now? As you know, we have kids that were fully remote last year and how do we help them acclimate? And some of them have seen things that, you know, from being home all the time that they wouldn't normally see. So just yeah. really just trying to dig to the core of that. That's a great recommendation. I think totally apropos. Not a book that I've read, but now adding to my list. Which not is Audible. Else. I've been listening to it too. It's on Audible. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that listening either. Great. Um, okay, I appreciate that. And then last question, um, Sarah, how can people learn more about the work you're doing? I know you're active on social and lots of other places. How can people learn more about you? A couple ways. So Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at M-R-S-S-A-I-D. Uh, so Mrs. Saeed17. And also, so I've been doing this project with um, my team called the Stand-Up Stumps, and we have it on our school. So if you go to our school website, um, www.elginmathandscience.com, you can see the Stand-Up Stumps project we've been doing and some of our latest work with our, um, our JEDI frameworks, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion that we've been doing as well. Yeah, check that out. And if people are wondering more about that, Sarah and I, Sarah, you and I talked before we clicked record. Mm -hmm. This is probably just one of a two-parter that we'll do because there's some yeah. really amazing work happening with those two projects. And I encourage people to check that out. And um, I'm hoping that we can find time in the next couple of months to, to bring you on again Absolutely. and talk about that. Because that's a Absolutely. key component of what we need to do um, with, with these students. But I, for today, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about something that um, I feel like, frankly, we could do better. And that is um, give students the agency over their own learning and allow them to really set goals, track those goals and figure out where they were, because that's or where they're going and where they and where they want to go. Um, that's what assessment and um, learning should be really all about. 
Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.